Good morning, saints. Please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17 will be our text this morning. And as you turn there and as we prepare to read this passage, I want you to take note of three literary features of repetition in our text. First, you're going to notice the repetition of the phrase, in me. Second, you're going to notice the repetition of the concept of bearing fruit. And thirdly, you're going to note the repetition of the word abide. And these three features give us great insight really to the point of the passage. We will find that Christ is the realm in which fruit is born. We'll find that bearing fruit is the expectation of those who are in Christ. And we'll find that abiding in Christ is the means by which fruit is born. And so with that said, pay attention to those elements as we read the Word of God. I do now invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative Word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is His Word. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire. And burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things... I command you so that you will love one another. Let us pray. 
Lord, we now ask that you would please bless the preaching and hearing of your word this morning. To the extent that you would be glorified and that we, your church, would be edified and that others might be helped and benefited. All this through the ministry of your word and in the power of your spirit, we ask. Amen. I've entitled this sermon, In or Out. And as God would have it, Pastor Kevin stood in this pulpit and he asked us to consider this question. Are you saved? Certainly one of the most important questions that we could ever ask ourselves. And I believe that this text will help us to rightly answer that question. And so let's get right to the text. In this text, we are going to see three aspects of abiding in Christ that prompt true disciples, those who have truly believed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, to bear fruit, to find joy, and to love one another. First, we're going to look at the environment of abiding in Christ and the emphasis on abiding in Christ, and lastly, the effect of abiding in Christ. And note that we have a disproportionate sermon this morning. We're going to spend the majority of our time in the first two verses. And so let us begin there with the environment of abiding in Christ. Jesus, before exhorting his disciples to abide in him, he employs the seventh formal I am statement. And this presents the conditions or the situation in which his disciples are to abide in him. Verse 1 again reads, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Here as Jesus speaks to his disciple, he begins an elongated metaphor. And he identifies himself as the true vine and he identifies his father as the vine dresser or the vine grower, or the farmer, or the gardener. And here we are reminded that the Father is the one who sent his Son into the world. If you will, the gardener has placed his vine into the vineyard. And Jesus calling himself the true vine is important. And it's significant, and the reason why that is the case is because this is a familiar term used for the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. However, in contrast to Jesus, who is the true vine, the nation of Israel is portrayed as an unproductive vine, a corrupt vine, a vine whose branches are to be removed, a vine that would be demolished. And in contrast to that corrupt vine, unfaithful Israel, Jesus is the true vine, who is always faithful to his Father to the very end. Yet, even though he is faithful, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus would be challenged, and he would suffer, 
though he was faithful, it's Jesus of Nazareth who took upon himself the failure and the faithlessness of Israel. Moreover, he took upon himself the sins and the failures of people from all nations, such that by his blood, by his blood he ransomed, as Revelation 5, 9 says, people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Though he is the true vine, he would be treated as the corrupt vine. And I don't want us to miss the, the monumental shift in the redemptive history that is implicit here in this text. Israel as the vine was under the old covenant, specifically under the Mosaic covenant. But it's Jesus. And Jesus as the true vine who fulfills the requirements of the Mosaic code and inaugurates the new covenant through his death, resurrection, and ascension. And so therefore, Gentiles no longer have a, a need to go to Israel to hear and to know about the God of Israel. Rather, the nations and all people from every nation need to go to Christ to know God. And this true vine, Jesus, would send out the disciples in his name. That's what he's doing in the farewell discourse. He's preparing his disciples for the mission that they will take after his death. And he would send out his disciples. And through the ministry of his disciples, you know what would happen? They would proclaim Christ. And people from every nation would come to know God through the person and work of Christ. And here we are, nearly 2,000 years later, and it continues to be the same. That people proclaim the name of Christ, that he sends his disciples out into the nations, and that through the person and work of Christ, him being proclaimed, people come to know God through Christ. Jesus, as the true vine, became the only hope for the nation of Israel. He became the only hope for all nations. And that remains today. However, as I already mentioned, this true vine would be pierced for the transgressions of his people. And what I love uh, about this metaphor is he's not surprised by that. His father's not surprised by that. Remember, it's God the Father who is depicted as the vine dresser or the, the farmer or the grower. And this indicates, indicates his sovereignty and the mission of his son. He is the one overseeing it. He is the one orchestrating it. He is the one who is causing it to come to fruition. Just as Israel is depicted as the vine throughout the Old Testament, so is God depicted as the vine dresser throughout the Old Testament. We could go to quite a few places, but it's all located in Psalm 80. So turn there with me briefly, please. Psalm chapter 80, we'll pick it up in verse 7. And listen to the cry of the psalmist Asaph. Israel, as that corrupt vine, needs to be restored. And so the remnant, the, the faithful, would cry out 
such as this, verse 7, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. That is the river Euphrates. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stalk of your right hand, planted. And for the son whom you made strong for yourself. The psalmist crying out on behalf of the nation of Israel, the vine that was taken out of Egypt and planted in the land and flourished for a time being until they turned away from their God to foreign gods. And so Jesus, as the true vine, succeeded where the nation of Israel failed. But we have to be careful with this because the remainder of the New Testament presents that there's still hope for the nation of Israel, particularly in Romans 9 through 11. And so Jesus' obedience to his Father as opposed to Israel's disobedience does not communicate that God's promises to the nations have ceased or that the nation of Israel's promises have been discontinued. Rather, this illustration is looking back at the history of Israel, not for forward to the future hope of the nation. And this passage presents Jesus as I've already said, as the only hope for the nation of Israel, as the only hope for any other nation, and as the only hope for any and every individual. He alone is the true vine. And union with this true vine is the means by which his father becomes our father. And so as we continue to consider the environment of abiding in Christ, I want us to see That verse 1 has two characters. It's the father and the son. The father as the sovereign gardener, the son as the choice vine. And we see a harmony of purpose between the father and the son in accomplishing the mission of redemption. In verse 1, the gardener is over the vine. But in verse 2, we're introduced to the branches in relation to the vine dresser and the true vine. In other words, after identifying the role of the father, And the role of the son in the first verse of this metaphor, Jesus moves on to identify his disciples. As we enter into verse 2, I want to let you know up front that we are entering into a major interpretational debate. Let's read verse 2. It reads, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear fruit more fruit. The debate is primarily concerning the identity of these branches. So the question is this, do the branches depict true believers regardless if they are taken away or if they are pruned? That is, both branches in verse 2, they're they're true believers. Or do the branches, with two different destinations, 
represent two categories of disciples. Some who will be taken away due to a superficial connection to the vine, and others who will be pruned and thus thrive as a result of a vital connection with the vine. That's the question. So let's spend a few moments trying to rightly identify these branches. Let's begin with the first view. Those who argue that both the branch that is taken away and the branch that is pruned, those who argue that those branches are representative of true believers, make this argument on the basis of the prepositional phrase, in me. What does Christ say in verse 2? Every branch in me. And and so they're going to say that there are some believers who do not bear fruit and other believers who do bear fruit. They say that those believers who bear fruit are those who are abiding in Christ. In other words, one can truly believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and maybe have an initial close relationship with him, an initial fellowship with him, but that's not promised for through the duration of their Christian life, such that they can begin by bearing fruit and coming to faith, but maybe they slip away. So they argue a true believer does not, is not guaranteed to bear, through, bear fruit throughout their Christian life. The problem, I believe, with this verse, or with this view, is verse 6. Look with me again at verse 6. Christ says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. I don't think we pause long enough to consider the, the severity of what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here. Do you hear his words? He's thrown away. Gathered, but not gathered for a good end. Gathered for the purpose of being thrown into the fire and being burned. People who hold that these fruitless branches are true believers, they suggest that there are ways to get around verse 6 and to still understand that each branch, that the one who's taken away and the one that is pruned are true believers. First, they suggest that rather than the fruitless branches being taken away, that they are lifted up, that they are picked up, if you will, to be encouraged to to bear fruit. And there are reasons why this is argued. The, The lexical range of the word that is translated taken away does include this idea of lifting up, and so there is some credence to that idea. But again, when we read through verse 6, we don't get any idea of encouragement. We don't get any idea of support to lift them up that the sun might shine on the branch and then they'd begin to bear fruit. Rather, we get the picture of their destruction. Other people say this, okay, well, they're true believers, but they're true believers who simply lose their salvation. And as you probably have figured out from being here for any length of time, I believe that that idea is from the pit of hell. We already saw in John chapter 6, verse 35, let's turn there quickly, listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ says. Verse 
John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, eternal life is eternal life. That if you have looked on the Son by the grace of God, you are secure. Praise the Lord. Jesus also says in chapter 10, look at verse 28 and 29. I give them eternal life, Jesus speaking, and they will never perish. He's speaking of his sheep who hear his voice. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So the idea that, yeah, they're true believers, but they just lose their salvation goes directly against what Jesus says earlier in the very same gospel. Well, there's another view. Those who would argue that the fruitless branches are true believers would say, well, they're taken away in a positive sense. No, they're not lifted up. They truly are taken away, but they're not taken away in a negative sense. They are taken away from their superficial connection with Jesus, and they are connected to him in a deep, meaningful, intimate relationship in order to have closer connection with Jesus. What's my problem with this? Verse 6, once again, we don't get this idea that there's at some point a, a reunification, if you will, but rather we have the idea of destruction. And lastly, for those who argue that the fruit, fruitless branches are taken away, but they're still uh, believers, they're going to say they're taken away in the sense that they receive discipline from God by loss of reward and possibly even death. But again, I have problems reconciling that with verse 6. The branch is thrown away. It's not united with Christ in heaven. There's no indication of that in the text whatsoever. And so for clarity's sake, I think that this view, the idea that the fruitless branches are true believers, I think it's wrong. I think it's incorrect. And I think there's a better way to interpret and identify these branches in verse 2 on the basis of the context of the gospel of John and the rest of Scripture. And so let me explain. I want to argue that the fruitless branch is not a true believer, and that the fruitful branch that is pruned is a true believer. In other words, there are two kinds of disciples that are depicted in verse 2. The fruitless branches are those who have an association with Jesus. Yes, they're associated with Jesus, but they're not true believers in Jesus. Well, the fruitful branches have a vital union with Jesus such that they bear fruit. And so, the idea is that for the Father to remove every branch in Jesus that does not bear fruit, that means that fruitless branches are, branches are severed from their superficial connection with Christ. In other words, they're seen for what they truly are. That's the idea, and they're dealt with accordingly. Why do I think this view is correct? Well, first, it best fits the context and the theme of superficial disciples 
in John's gospel. As we've worked our way through the gospel of John, we've seen over and over and over again that there are some disciples who are superficial, that they come to Jesus for the wrong reasons or they want something from Jesus, but they don't want to follow Jesus, truly lay down their lives and follow him. We saw this in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Jesus does not entrust himself to the people because he knows what is in man. We saw this in chapter 6, verse 14, and again in chapter 6, verses 60 through 66. They want Jesus because why? He fed 5,000 people. We're going to follow him so we can get the bread. We saw this in chapter 8, verses 30 and 31, and verses 30 through 46. They say they believe Jesus, but Jesus will end up calling them what? Not sons of God, but sons of Satan. And so I, I think we see that this is a reality in the Gospel of John, that there are some disciples who have an association with Jesus, but at some point, at some point, they fall away. Second verse 6 says that the fruitless branches will be cast out or thrown away. And in the Greek, it's interesting. It's balo echo in the Greek. But Jesus says that those who come to him would certainly not be cast out, ek balo echo. And so you see the contrast one people, or verse 6 says, hey, they're going to be cast out. And Jesus himself says that those who come to him will never be cast out. Third, I think that this view best accounts for the idea of progressive belief in the gospel of John. And again, as we've preached through the gospel of John, we have seen this. There are some people who believe in some things about Jesus yet, but there is a point in which that belief ceases. However, faith that comes from above begins with taking Jesus at his word. It continues with taking Jesus at his word, and it forever takes Jesus at his word. In other words, you can come to Jesus by the simple preaching of the gospel, but if that faith has been given by God, every time you heard the word of Jesus, you say yes and amen, and you submit to it. I love what Carl Laney says. He says, in John's writings, belief begins, continues, is strengthened, and finally is consummated in an abiding faith. In other words, many people believe in some things about Jesus, but God-given, spirit-empowered, reborn faith receives and trust in the whole person of Christ. Fourth, I believe that this view is the best view because it fits the immediate context of John. Yes, we've seen superficial disciples as we've worked our way through the gospel of John, but let us not forget that when the farewell discourse begins, who's in the room? Judas. When he says these words, Judas is no longer there. So it seems really helpful to consider in the immediate context, Judas, Iscariot, and Simon Peter, perhaps. On the one hand, it could be said that Judas, Iscariot, had fellowship with Christ. But he didn't bear fruit as we saw in chapter 13, verses 21 through 27. On the other hand, it could be said that Simon Peter believed in Jesus, but we're already told in the same chapter, chapter 13, that he would do what? He would deny Christ. And so some people might say, well, look, Peter doesn't bear fruit either, at least not immediately. But as we know the story goes, Judas and Peter end up in two different destinations, do they not? And why is that the case? The difference seems to be that 
Judas Iscariot's relationship with Christ was superficial, while Peter's was genuine. Peter was truly Christ. Christ truly grasped and held on to Peter such that he could not be plucked from Jesus' hand. Rather, Jesus, as Peter's shepherd, he mediated on his behalf. Do you remember that account in Luke chapter 22? Where Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked for you pretty much. But then Jesus says, but I have prayed. I have mediated on your behalf. And that when you return, go and strengthen the disciples. Praise the Lord. And that mediation that Christ does for Peter, it, it guarantees that Peter would bear fruit. It can be said that Peter's God-given faith was genuine and it resulted in fruit-bearing fellowship on the basis of that authentic faith. Yes, despite Peter's significant yet temporary failure, he was connected to the vine in such a way that he would certainly bear fruit. And finally, and simply also, Scripture simply asserts that believers bear fruit. We can look to other places in the gospel, Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 19, we shall, shall know them by their fruit. Or maybe my favorite is the parable of the sower. We find it in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20 and elsewhere, but it indicates that, that true faith leads to bearing fruit. That there are, there are four kinds of places that the seed lands, but there's one, that, that, that seed, it takes root in the heart of a person, and they bear fruit, yes, albeit to different degrees, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, but they do bear fruit. So fruitlessness indicates a lack of union with the vine. It seems that fruit is both an expectation and a certainty in the lives of believers for one reason and one reason only because they are connected to the vine. And as a matter of fact, John 15, 8 states that bearing fruit is associated with being a true disciple of Jesus, and we'll get there shortly. You put it this way, as Robert Peterson does, fruit bearing is proof of discipleship, and, lacks, and the lack of fruit betrays that one was never really connected to the vine in a life-giving way. Commentator Edward Klink says, fruit is not being used as a requirement but rather as a symptom of faith. Thus, this text suggests that fruitless branches are those without genuine faith, saints, and therefore those without organic connection to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true vine. And notice this, lastly, before we make our way into verse 3. The true believer bears fruit, and the Father prunes that branch, so that it might bear more fruit. In other words, where there is genuine faith, fruit is born, and the Father is faithful to, to prune that branch, so that that branch might bear more fruit. I just want to encourage us, saints. I just want to encourage us, because pruning is painful. Pruning is painful, but it's not only painful, it's also productive. My wife has a rose bush, 
and she prunes it every once in a while. And, and I'm going to tell you that after she's done pruning it, it looks pitiful. It, it looks terrible. I think to myself, oh, Lord, you've ruined your plant, babe. But in due time, saints, its beauty is bountiful. We have an apricot tree or an apricot tree, the exact same idea. You prune it, and it looks terrible. And, and me of little faith, oh, my goodness, no, no apricots are coming on this tree. But in due time, saints, in due time, its fruit flourishes. The pruning work of the Father is painful but productive. And so saints of redeemed South Bay endure that you might bear more fruit. This is the environment of abiding in Christ. Why, why would I spend so much time in these two verses when I have another 15 verses to cover? It's a fair question. But if you don't understand the environment of abiding in Christ, then you cannot grasp the emphasis on abiding in Christ and the effect of abiding in Christ. So let us turn now to the emphasis on abiding in Christ in verses 3 through 10. In John's gospel, you have the word minnow, which is translated abide here in the ESV, you have it 40 times in the Gospel of John. But 10 of those 40 occurrences are in John chapter 15, verses 4 through 10. We have an additional occurrence in verse 16. And the concentration of the term abide is the largest concentration anywhere in Scripture. And this emphatically displays the importance of it in our text. However, before we are bombarded with abide bombs, we do have verse 3 before us. Look at what the Lord Jesus Christ says to his disciples. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Again, remember, Judas Iscariot is gone. He is no longer with them. And now Jesus looks intently into the eyes of these 11 disciples whom he has chosen, and he assures them that they are already clean. And it's as a result of the word that Jesus had spoken to them. Before the commands to abide in verses 4 through 10, there is a prerequisite. And these disciples need to know that they have been cleansed. Jesus, remember, has already washed the disciples' feet. And in chapter 13, verses 10 and 11, he says, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. That person having left, now Jesus assures and comforts his disciples that they are truly his disciples. Before you can abide in Christ, you must be cleansed by Christ. And before we can proceed in the text, you need to consider if indeed you have been cleansed by Christ. Christ. 
Paul would put it this way in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. No, 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 that's not what saves us. But according to his own mercy, listen, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit whom he poured out on us richly, through whom? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, Jesus tells his disciples that they are already clean because of the word that he has spoken to them. And part of his word to them was that he was going to the Father by means of the cross, but that he would not leave them. As a matter of fact, that he would rise from the grave and appear to them and that he would ascend into heaven and he would give them of his spirit. The immediate disciples are cleansed by his word. And so are all true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus prays what? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And yes, he's talking about his immediate disciples, those 11 in that moment. But just a few verses later, what does he say? John chapter 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 20. He also prays for us, saints. He cleanses all of his disciples by the truth of his word. And we receive his word by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone. And then we get the command, abide. You are cleansed and now abide. And so therefore what we have in verses 10 through 11, the disciples are exhorted to persist in the present reality of the relationship with an identity in Christ. You've been cleansed. I've brought you near to myself. And the exhortation is to persist, to continue on. To remain. And so in verses 10 through, in verses 4 through 10, generally speaking, these verses, they reintroduce this idea of what's known as mutual indwelling. We saw it first in chapter 14, verse 20. And the idea is that believers are in Christ and that Christ is also in believers. And this is what many theologians refer to as the doctrine of union with Christ. And perhaps Paul puts it most easily for us to grasp. He simply says this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. What a concept. I've died. It is no longer I who live, he says, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And I just love this. Who loved me, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see how personal it is for Paul? It's not all God saves people. God saves whom he chooses. But, but Christ loved me. And Christ gave himself for me. That's a fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit presses those things so deeply in your soul that you know and you believe that Christ is yours and you are Christ's. We see that faith is the means by which the believer is united to Christ. We see that in Paul's language here. And we remember that the disciples have already been told to believe in Christ. Remember chapter 14, verse 1. 
He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And certainly such belief is the means by which the disciples are united to Christ. But in our text, John gives us even more than that. Let's pull out some, specific from these, some specifics from these verses. First, the word abide. In verse 4, the first part of it, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. Again, that's that word, minnow, translated abide. It can mean to remain. It can mean to, to stay, to continue, to exist, to dwell, to persist, to last, to wait for, to continue, and on and on and on. And at times, John uses the term to express a relationship of existing or operating within, such that God dwells in Christ. We see that in John 14, verse 10. Believers abide in Christ. We see that in our text. Christ abides in believers. We also see that in our text. God abides in believers. We see that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. And believers abide in God. We see that in 1 John chapter 2, verses 24, and 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. But we have to be careful here as well. We should not in any way understand the terms of abiding between believers and any person of the triune God in any ontological or overly mystical sense. And what I mean by that is when we read that the believer abides in Christ and Christ in them, we should not believe that believers become God in any sense of the word or that believers are somehow absorbed into the divine nature such that we lose our personhood. That is not what's being communicated. And as a matter of fact, John actually maintains the biblical doctrine of the self-existence of God as he uses this terminology throughout his gospel. He upholds the distinction, and rightly so, of creation and creator. And he does so by indicating that believers abide in God through faith and fellowship, which are sourced from God himself. Grant Macasill pointed out that Jesus' abiding language in the context of fellowship with his disciples denotes interpersonal communion rather than an absorption or an ontological mingling into the divine persons. He says, in the Gospel of John, the distinction between the Godhead and the believer remains upheld and the persons of the triune God are always conveyed as superior to those whom they indwell. It's helpful for us to think through that. It is through faith that we enter into fellowship with the triune God. We remain distinct from the creator. But some have asked the question, why does Jesus command his disciples to abide in him after telling them that they are clean? After all, haven't they believed on him? Isn't belief the initial step of abiding? Haven't they remained with him? Are they not in the midst of abiding him abiding in him as he speaks to them? Is it necessary for Christ to tell his disciples to abide in him? Well, I would argue anything that Christ says is necessary. Amen? So we'll go ahead and, and cross that off. But, but Christ, I, I just love the, this text and this passage in the Upper Room Discourse. Christ has one eye on the cross, and he has one eye on his disciples, knowing that these are the ones whom he has poured into and whom he will send out. He knows the events leading up to the cross. 
He knows that the cross itself will test and will tempt and will terrify his disciples. And so therefore, in verse 3, he assures and comforts his disciples. But in verse 4, he arrests and captures his disciples with the call to abide in him. The Greek grammarian Daniel Wallace does something really helpful, I think, here, and I think it's spot on. He classifies this, this verb, abide, as what he calls a, a constative imperative. Let me tell you what that means. He says the grammar here is stressing the urgency of the action rather than the beginning of the action. Wallace says it's as if the author says, make this, abiding in me, your top priority. That's what he thinks that Jesus is emphasizing here. Again, Edward Klink suggests that this command establishes the primary way believers fellowship with God and the main way Christians exist. That is, in union with Christ. Saints, the command to abide in Christ stresses the urgency and primacy of the matter. The urgency and the primacy of the matter. And those... Four little words. Abide in me and I in you. Remind us that the proper prioritization of the command to abide in Christ is a result of Christ abiding in the believer. As a matter of fact, Jesus continues the imagery of the vine and the branches by stating that an isolated branch can bear no fruit, but, but that a branch connected to the vine does bear fruit. Therefore, his disciples, being the branches, can do what? Can do some things apart from him. No. Can do nothing. Can do nothing apart from him. He explicitly states it. He says, I am the vine. Listen to this distinction. He, he's clarifying. I am the vine. You are the branches. You know what's superior to the branches? The vine. I am the vine, he says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. God, help us to believe that. Help us to believe that, Lord. That for apart from, from him, we can do nothing. It's clear, it's emphatic. Look, you abide in me and I in you, such that the expectation is bearing fruit. Oh, and by the way, you can't bear fruit apart from me. You depend on me. I don't depend on you. It's necessary for you to be on me, be in me, not the other way around. There's an inability to do things apart from Christ. And then in verses 6 and 7, he gives us these contingency statements. We've already looked at verse 6, but briefly, if anyone does not abide in me, that's a negative contingency. If anyone does not abide in me, then in short, they will be destroyed. Destruction is their end. Agony is their end. If you're unproductive, you will be taken away. You'll be thrown away like a branch. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And then we have a positive contingency in verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Not only Christ in you, but also his words in you. And then he links that reality with prayer. 
Remember in 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 and 15, John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. It's helpful for us to consider the prayers of the saints recorded in the New Testament. To consider the nature of their prayers, the the types of things that they're praying for. It's God-centered, it's biblical. It's recorded in Scripture such that we might follow their example. Knowing that his word abiding in us leads to us praying his word and God is delighted. He is delighted to uphold the truth of his word. And then verse 8 says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Does Jesus say, bear much fruit and then become my disciples? No, that's not what he says. That's not what he says. Just consider the men that he's talking to. He, He took men of no status. No status in the eyes of the world, and he called them to be his disciples. He spoke the truth to them. He shared his life with them, and he caused them to be transformed. And now he says that the Father is glorified when the disciples whom he has chosen bear much fruit. And that the bearing of fruit is not the cause of being a disciple, but rather the bearing of fruit is the result of being a disciple of Christ. And this result flows from the emphasis on abiding in Christ and he abiding in you. Look at verses 9 and 10 quickly and be floored. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And then after that reality, the exhortation to abide in his love. Just as the father cares for his son and sees to it that in the end the son will be glorified, so also Jesus cares for his own and sees to it that in the end they will share in that very glory. And so the emphasis now is to abide in the love of Christ. How does one know if they abide in the love of Christ? That's a great question. Well, verse 10 is helpful. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Another contingency statement. And remember in verse 15 of chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we have Jesus both providing the example and the enablement for obedience. Jesus says, look, I followed my Father. I have submitted to His commands. You go and do likewise. You have the example in verse 10 and the enablement in verse 5. For apart from Him, we can do nothing. Beloved, there is both an expectation. Hear me now. There's both an expectation and a responsibility for us to bear fruit. For true disciples to abide in Christ means that they are bearing fruit. Let's quickly 
turn to our last point, the effect of abiding in Christ. We've seen the environment. We've seen the emphasis. Well, what's the result? And in reality, we have already entered into the effect or the result of abiding in Christ to some extent. It could be argued that abiding in Christ results in effectual prayer. We saw that in verse 7. It could certainly be said that the general effect of abiding in Christ is the bearing of fruit. That's been the emphasis. And that might even be defined as simply keeping and obeying his commandments. So we've witnessed that. But in verses 11 through 17, there are two specific effects that I want to highlight. One is joy, and the other is love for one another. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. These things referring back to certainly at least the beginning of chapter 15. And these things that Jesus had spoken and the realities therein should result in the exudation of joy from the disciples. Yes, I'm going to the cross, but I'm coming back, so abide and rejoice. Yes, I'm going to the cross, but the Spirit will come after I am physically absent, so do what? So abide and rejoice. Yes, I'm going to the cross, but in so doing, I am paying the penalty for your sin. I am completing the work of redemption. I am taking the path to my exaltation, to the glory of God, and I am securing your eternal hope. So do what, saints? So abide and rejoice. The word of truth from Jesus our Lord, Lord about the union with him is the way to joy, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. One aspect is joy, the other is love for one another. Verses 12 through 17 read, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command to you, so that you will love one another. Notice the bracket, verse 12 and verse 17. Love one another. That's the bracket. And everything therein is is describing or helping us to understand in what manner, on what basis they are to love one another. As the Father loved Christ, Christ loved his disciples, and he tells them then, therefore, love one another. The love is rooted in the love of Christ itself. And then he moves on to this great statement that greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends which he will do, which he will do. The word translated for there is is huper in the Greek, and it's the idea that someone would lay down their lives on behalf of or in the place of or in the stead of their friends. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did in our stead, in our place, on our behalf, those of us who abide in him by his grace. And so when we get to verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. Please do not read that as if Jesus is saying, if you do what I tell you to do, then you have earned or then you have merited 
being my friend. That's not what he's saying. Rather, verse 14 flows from verse 13. And it's followed by verse 15, which indicates that Jesus himself calls his disciples friends and that the word that he gave them is the means by which he makes them his friend. I love that. He says, I call you friends. Jesus is certain about what's going to happen. Jesus is aware of what God is going to do through these disciples. And so in other words, we can say this, Jesus can make friends with whoever he wants. And those friends are enabled and expected to do what he commands. And amazingly, and amazingly, the 11 men whom he is taking, uh, whom he is talking to end up doing what? They end up doing exactly what he commands. And that reality of Jesus' friendship is substantiated in verse 16. And I'll just tell you this. He says, look, I chose and appointed you. You didn't choose me. Bear fruit. And oh, by the way, your fruit will remain. If you want a commentary and an exposition on that verse, I invite you to read the book of Acts this afternoon. Their fruit would remain. And the church continues to benefit from the fruit that was borne by these 11 men. And finally, the Lord Jesus Christ simply says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Beloved, the effect of abiding in Christ is bearing fruit generally. But in our text, it's specifically joy and it's specifically loving one another. Do you love? Do you love the saints? And when I say love, I don't mean do you feel warm and mushy and gushy when we run into one another. That's not what I mean. But as Jesus loved us, we are to love one another. And so that would indicate there is some sacrifice on our part as we love one another. As I was studying this text, I was just thinking about this week, the ways in which I have been loved by the saints. I've been loved by someone driving me to Shepherd's Conference all week. I've been loved by going to Shepherd's Conference this week. I was loved by a brother who rebuked me this week. I was loved by a brother who asked me hard questions this week. I was loved by a brother who encouraged me this week. I was loved by my wife as she cared for my children as I was away at the conference all week. There are so many ways in which the saints are to love one another. It doesn't always look grand. It doesn't always look grandiose. But do you love the saints in the way that Christ has loved you, namely Sacrificially. The environment of abiding in Christ's saints, it's God-centered. He is the true vine. His Father is the vine dresser. Every branch that bears fruit in him, the Father prunes that we might bear more fruit. You have to understand the environment if you're going to take the challenge to rightly prioritize abiding in Christ. And that would be simply what I beg and plead on behalf of this congregation before the Lord, is that I myself and we as a congregation would prioritize saints, rightly prioritize abiding, abiding in Christ, that there would be some sense of urgency, that, that we would wake up knowing that we are living for Christ because he died for us. 
and that by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, we would see that effect of abiding in Christ. That we'd see the results of abiding in Christ ever increasingly until he calls us home or until we see him face to face when he returns. Let us pray. Lord, help us. Help us, O oh God. To rightly prioritize abiding in Christ. This text is so helpful for us to consider where we stand with you, knowing that we are enabled and expected to, to bear fruit because we've been cleansed by Christ, if indeed we are in Christ, such that we are to prioritize our relationship with him above all things, bringing you glory and benefiting others around us. I do pray that you would give us clarity as we consider these things. Give us clarity on where we stand. Encourage us when we need to be encouraged. Admonish us in the areas we need to be admonished. But above all else, Lord, I pray that our confidence, that our assurance would rest not on our works, but in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And upon that reality, would we by your grace and in the power of your spirit go and bear much fruit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.